Hey folks, this is Ian Foster, and this is If and When, a podcast where I talk to other creators about how and why they do their thing. To start, I'm talking to colleagues, friends, and veterans of the arts community at home here in Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. These are not so much traditional interviews as they're a chat over coffee or something a little stronger. So come sit in and have a listen. Oh, hi, this is Ian Foster. This is my podcast, If and When. Thanks for tuning in for the first time or again. If it is your first time, immediately go back to the previous episode, which is part one of my conversation with Justin Sims. This is part two, and I hope you enjoy the second part as much as the first. Before we get into that, what's happening with me? Well, settling into the fall a little bit. Project-wise, I'm currently working up to making a video for an artist. We're shooting it in a warehouse. It's going to be pretty cool. Really looking forward to that. More details on that soon. Um, I'm working on a couple of records for a few different artists right now. A band called The Duds, which is Melanie O'Brien and Philip Goodridge, and another solo artist named Kirk Wells. Both of those out in the fall to winter. And I'm trying to work on my own stuff as well. Um, Some new songs coming slowly. A record in mind next year. Don't know too much about it yet. Plans are in motion. We'll see. Nothing really to say. You know, I'm saying it here now, but that's it. This is all the info that I have. I have some songs that are performed on pianos and guitars. And we'll see if they remain on pianos and guitars when the time comes. But... I'm excited about them. I'm digging what's happening right now. Some interesting sounds, you know? Some interesting little little things. Little things. This is probably the vaguest possible introduction ever. Anyway, on October the 20th, I am doing my first live episode of If and When with the legendary Mary Walsh. It's going to happen at The Rooms. You can get tickets. There is advertised info right now on The Room's website in their brochure, and I really would like to see you there because it's a little bit of a milestone. I've been doing this thing since the spring. It feels very soon, but also the right time to try out something a little different with the podcast. So we're going to do a live episode in front of people. You'll hear people laugh and gasp and maybe tisk-tisk if we say the F word and stuff. Um, We'll see. Uh, anyway, regardless, it should be something to behold and it'll be up here as well. So you could listen to it here eventually, but why not come to the show? You know, um, okay, let's dive right in part two of my conversation with filmmaker, Justin Sims. Oh, and just for some clarity, we pick up part two talking about his film ashore. It was the first time working with like an experienced crew. Mm. Um, and that was really great. I remember being pretty unhappy every day because it was my first real um, experience on like uh, having to get a real day, mm. right? Because it was like, I think a 45 page script if memory serves. So, and we had nine days. So mm. we had to get a, definitely had to get a certain number of days done. There were a lot of different locations and, um, sort of boats on the water stuff. It was, it was pretty complex for what was not a feature. Mm-hmm. So 
And I remember I wasn't at all prepared for the kind of, okay, you've got, you know, an hour and 20 minutes to shoot the scene. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Or you've got to shoot the scene now. Or you get to the end of this grueling scene and you just want to like splash some water on your face and take a breath. But no, you have to do this next giant scene starting now and you've got 41 minutes. And it yeah. was like my, it was a real kind of trial by fire in terms of just the pressure of, having to get your day and having to shoot meaningful stuff. But on the clock, just on the clock. Yeah. 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 Yep. I remember experiencing the smallest amount of that on on Keystone, my second short that was, you know, because yep. it was picture started was it was a full size crew even though it was a short. And uh and how you know I was very lucky with with my producer Mike Chaffini on that, I found he was he was very good at like leading me into that world, knowing that I was, you know, I'd done another film, but that I was coming at it from a music side of things. Because music is collaborative, but film is, you know, just people standing around waiting for you to get the shot and then running out of time and just being like, "Hope you got it." Like that is, yep. that's a different. That's that's an it's an it's an misunderstood thing I think for most people who don't know how films get made, like the, that amount of pressure. Yes. One of the things that is the hardest to learn when you're making films like that is the, like, if you make low budget independent films, it's hard to be a perfectionist, Mm. right? Because a lot of the time you kind of have to stop where you're at. It's like, you're not going to get a take 12, right? It's like, got to get going. Sure. Um, And learn how to not hate that and learn how to not uh let it fuck with you uh emotionally right and kind of learn to appreciate the jazzy kind of quality of it right and also as you make more films you sort of get a lot smarter in terms of like how much there is to actually do it's like you know maybe we don't I don't need seven angles on this particular scene. Maybe it's a one or maybe it's like, right. and you get sort of better at the math of like, well, you know, scene 20 is like the most important scene. So I want like three hours to shoot scene 20 because I want to do like a whole bunch of different stuff. So that means that the scenes you shoot in the day leading into scene 20, you're going to be very economical, minimal, uh, all to help the overall kind of flow towards the all important scene 20. Right. But on a shore and like down to the dirt, like it was a long time when you still kind of, like you might know that intellectually, but it's like you're still kind of walking into every scene with 12 setups and this mental image of a scene that like, you know, you're never going to get to shoot that scene. It's like, stop thinking about the scene that way. Like you're still thinking about the scene like it was when you wrote it. And so then you go and shoot what you have to shoot, but it's not what was in your head because you didn't have time for what was in your head. So now you feel that the scene hasn't worked and that it's lousy, but like, that's not the case, right? Right. There's almost a Zen quality to like a sort of approaching it. Like, uh, I, I need to accept the things that are in front of me as they are, because otherwise I'm not even living in, in the moment that I'm trying to capture. You're, yeah. you're living for this imaginary yeah. ideal, right? And there are kind of different forms obviously like you know famously david fincher likes to do like literally likes to do like a hundred takes yeah sure right 
uh, and he can spend three days on one scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, Wong Kar Wai, one of my heroes, he will often like will spend a whole day shooting a scene. Mm-hmm. Say if it was like you know husband and wife inside at their kitchen table eating breakfast, spend the whole day shooting that scene, and then he will say, "Well, tomorrow let's try shooting it outside." And see well, what that's like. Uh, and that's all wonderful ways to make a film. And I'd love to be able to make a film that way one day. Right. Yeah. But so much of um, how you plan to direct something has to be informed by the resources you have and what your reality is. Yeah. And if you're making low budget independent features, um, that has its own set of rules. Right. And definitely fun more for you in those cases if you could do it that way than the actors, I'm sure. From everything I've read from Fincher, I know that some actors kind of love it and there's definitely many who are like, it was very hard for him to hear, uh, you know, or hard for me to hear, scrap those first 60 takes, let's start again. You know, that's got to be a... <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Awkward oh, yeah. on set, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. But I mean, and that's also a, a kind of a of a rich kid advantage in a way like the ability to do a hundred takes like that's not necessarily reflective of the world that the vast majority of us are going to be making films in right i wonder how he got there because i mean at some point he had to work his way up to that level well he was a big music video guy i I remember like when he did freedom he he did uh Age of the Innocents, the yeah. Don Henley thing. I remember like, looking up his discography and just being like, or his whatever you videography, and just being like, "This is incredible." I've watched all these music videos, and they're all vastly different, yeah. which were clearly the uh, learning ground for him being Fincher eventually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's um, and like I'm not being critical at David Fincher, obviously, uh, but um, he is li- he does listen every week to well, this podcast. I'm sure because he's been tweeting right. Um, <laughs> But I, I say... Rosman Pike is in next week, by the way. Oh, nice. Uh, from Gone In this Korea. very chair. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, I think you need to have a video component to that podcast. <laughs> I think I should be here <laughs> documenting it. That sounds good. Live stream. I think that's uh, a great idea. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I guess I say derisively that it's a rich kid's advantage, which it is. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know... Um, when you have to make a feature for $500,000 or less, $100,000 or fifty, that has to inform the manner and the style that you're going to actually kind of make the film in. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's just what I kind of try to impart to people, right? Totally. When they're sort of asking about making a feature and how to get your head around it. It's like you really have to let the limitations in. Yeah. Right? Work with them. Don't. And anyway, that was what I was guilty of when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Was I still had this kind of, I would stay faithful to this um, image in my head. Right. And um, yeah, it was just a, not of, a lot of needless suffering, I right. think. Right, right, right. That I caused myself when now I think I've learned that like it's all in the edit really. Right. Right, and that you're not making the movie when you're shooting it. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that 
kind of understanding only comes from experience as well. Like you're gathering footage Mm -hmm. or you're helping the edit, you're setting the foundation for the edit, um, harvesting the materials for the edit. That's a really interesting perspective, you know, because obviously it's, it's got to be there. It's got to be on screen. It's got to be full of all those nuanced emotions that we see along the way. Um, but at the same time, it is, you know, it is an assembly of like how to get it from the prop and location list and the page to something that's going to serve the editor when he sits down to put it all together and go, this is a movie. I mean, that's the art of it, I guess. Or the craft, maybe even more. Yeah. Well, it's, I guess in a perfect world, it's an equal balance. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go through a couple of other films. Um, Hold Fast. That was uh, a director for Hire Gig. Okay. Um, Rosemary House, uh, who's a, you know, decorated filmmaker in her own right. Mm-hmm. Um, optioned that book and wrote the script. And she asked me to direct it. Mm-hmm. And Kevin Major was always a big deal in my house when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. My dad was a big fan. Mm-hmm. And so there were always Kevin Major books around. Right. Like I, read I read Blood Red Ochre when I was in high school. Blood Red Ochre, yeah. uh, his Bruce Springsteen book. Oh, yeah. yeah. Dear Bruce Springsteen. Right. Uh, and of course, Hold Fast. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, you know, a uh, family m- m- movie. Mm-hmm. Would be an interesting challenge, mm-hmm. right? Working mm-hmm. with uh, young p- p- people. We're able to go to Gross Morn and we shot a big chunk of it out there. Got to work with Molly Parker. Got to work with Andy Jones again. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, learned a lot. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Talk to me about a director for hire versus the alternative. Well, I mean, the phrase has a couple of different implications, I guess, but like, the way that I'm kind of expressing it is like uh, the script already exists, right? Mm-hmm. And you are being kind of hired to do a very specific job, which is to put that script on its feet, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of similar to what I guess would be more commonly um, grouped with being a television director. Right. Right. And that you show up, but they, the script is already written, the actors are already cast, sets are already made. Right, you're kind of in charge of making sure that the tone is maintained and consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I, I'm really curious your thoughts on on this as someone who's been through it on a level like that because it's always been fascinating to me. Like even at the absolute highest levels, I think you and I had this chat about Game of Thrones, right? Like if you're a Game of Thrones, let's say season six, episode five director. Like, you're not going to go in and tell any of the actors how to act because they're like, cool, I've been playing this person for eight years or whatever. Um, You're not going to go in and go, guys, I really think we should do this in, like, black and white for this scene. (laughs) Yeah. You know, because they're going to be like, the show. Right? Yeah. You know, it's like the show looks this way. Yeah. So it definitely has got to be a very different experience. And I'm curious, like... um, I mean, is it a fair question to ask how fulfilling that is versus the other way? Like... Well, I mean, I mean, it can definitely be fulfilling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like I've often felt that there comes a certain point where uh, it really doesn't matter, like everything that has gone 
before. It's like it's a bunch of people standing around a camera trying to make something work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter how much money's in the budget. Doesn't matter if it's a hundred person crew or you and four of your appels. It's like at the very core, you're still dramatizing. Right. And there's always a rush to be had from that. There's always high highs and exhilaration and the feeling that like, wow, this is working. This is good. Right. Um, but it's definitely not as satisfying as um, delivering a film from the very conception through to the very end. Right. Right. And I've always been a writer, a director. Like my, you know, all of my film school films, short films, uh, my docs, uh, uh, I've always written. Right. And just by a strange kind of confluence of events, my three dramatic features, maybe with the exception of Down to the Dirt, uh, have been essentially director for higher gigs Mm -hmm. and that these were pre-existing projects that I didn't start. Mm -hmm. I didn't write them. I co-wrote or I ended up co-writing the Down to the Dirt script. Mm -hmm. But I mean, that's... Joel's novel, Joel was the star of the film, and I definitely felt I was a custodian of that story. Um, So yeah, I kind of feel that my three, like I've yet to make, in terms of a dramatic feature, I've yet to make my own. Right. And that'll be my next one. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Um, Talk to me about studio notes and things. How does that, what's that experience like? Well, well, I mean, there's no, I think I might say this, that the quality of, or not, that's not the right way to start saying it. Um, There's no thing that dictates more somebody's uh, ability to work in the film and TV industry than their ability to take notes and process notes. Mm. Does that make sense? Did that, I, I crushed or I made, I made a mockery of that sentence. Not but, at all, no. Um, it, it just the ability, I mean, you're talking about the uh, elementary school report card of plays well with others versus doesn't play well with others, I guess. Exactly. It's an extremely collaborative medium yes. that's outside of just the crew. It's got yes. to be, you know. Yes. Uh, and I mean, it, you know, I guess it's the, the age old, I mean, we all know all the stories of, you know, it's just like artists talking to labels, right? It's the same, like, it's often painted in a negative way. It's not always a negative thing, you know? And you can totally understand why in theory it could be because, like, to use the artist label thing as a comparison, just the idea that, like, I've been hearing, you know, I've been I've been quite lucky if I've worked with an artist that's had management, they've been pretty cool, and many of them are independent artists, so mm-hmm. this hasn't been too much of an issue, you know? Mm-hmm. But, like, there's definitely that thing when you're working with an artist in a studio, you're making something, and then, like, somebody who, like, it's like they've, you know, you've been having the party at the house and they've been away and then they kick the door open and they're like, what's going on in here, you know? And it feels like they're coming in raw and fresh and you're ready to be self-righteous and be like, we're making art with a capital A and you're, you're, you're having me been around. And it's so easy to, to put person, people in that role, I think. Um, but of course it doesn't always play out that way. And sometimes the, the comments are valid, so. Oh yeah. And I mean, I'm happy that you said that actually, cause like lots of times, uh, the notes are good. Right. 
You know what I mean? Right. And if anything, like I'm, I'm at the point now where like I will pace myself for a good note. Right. Right. Like if I knew that you had a good note, like if I just somehow knew that you had a good note inside you for something that I was working on. Right. I would fucking get that note out of you, man. Yeah. And, um, you know, notes kind of change. Like there's notes that you can get from a broadcaster, notes from a distributor, but then there's notes from your friends, notes from a colleague. And, you know, I won't speak to music, but certainly film and television, man, lives on notes. It's like Mm -hmm. notes and note taking, note giving, note promising, note not giving. It's like that's the currency that a lot of... Or not the currency, but it's almost like the way that we communicate with each other. Right. Um, like the style of our notes and how we receive them and how we respond. And it's just very important. And it's a skill that you really got to learn, I think, if you're going to make a come of it. And I also agree with you that like there is this kind of like cliche or this iconic image of like, the tortured filmmaker and everybody's an idiot and the studio was trying to ruin my movie and all that stuff, right? I can, like, that's not the world that virtually all of the rest of us are going to make movies in. Right. And the fact of the matter is that an, an outside entity is investing money in your project. Right. So they have an absolute unassailable right to make comments on it as a work in progress. Right. And you've got a responsibility to not just blindly do what they say, Mm -hmm. but to act in the best interest of the project, but to be fair to those notes and to give them a fair shake. Right. And to let them be heard and let the people giving you the note know that they've been heard. Right. And man, that's an art form, but there's no other thing like that in my own view anyway, like that's the thing where I've seen a lot of great talented people quit because they can't handle the notes and the notes process. Right. Right. And that's a whole other kind of a psychological mind field of like for a lot of people, every note that they get is somehow this lash of a whip on you are a fraud or you're not good enough. Right. And I've completely felt that way lots of times. Sure. But then oh, you're think, trying to strip away. That's all you. That's not the note. Exactly. That's what the, you're putting on the note. And a great friend of mine gave me advice many years ago that I've heard now become kind of common. But what's really good about notes is, or what you're always looking for, is the note beneath the note. Mm. Right? Right. It's not necessarily what they're noting. It's the subtext of the note that is the actual note. Mm-hmm. Right? So if like somebody's not liking a particular scene or they might not like a character and they say, yeah, I don't like this character when they do this. And it's like, well, really what they don't like is like he doesn't treat his wife well. Or really what they don't like is that we haven't given him enough of a backstory. Yes. And once he had that, then this action he has in this particular scene is fine. Right. right? So always being able to recognize the note underneath the note. And I find that, that that's hard to tri- triangulate, you know? It often comes from, I know exactly what you're talking about, thinking about making a, you know, making a, a song in the studio and people listening to it and going like, I'm not sure if the energy is there. And then as your whole job becomes like trying to 
to divine what that means in this one case, right? Because the energy could absolutely mean that the singer was sleepy when he sang the vocal, but it could also just mean that the snare drum sounds like a piece of paper. Yeah. Or that, like, yep. you know, yep. the bass line is, like, weirdly off a little bit, and yep. it's making people feel like the song lags, and it becomes, like, what's the thing under this thing that tells me, you know? And sometimes that's, like, you give it to somebody who can say, I feel like the energy's off. And then you give it to the musician who goes, you know that the snare kind of sounds like nothing, right? Yep. And then you go, wait a second, I can I can draw the line here and figure it out. But it's an art in itself. And I think music and film have that quality in common in that, fuck, I don't even know how to phrase it, but that like, like I know in film say it's like, when you've got an actor and a close up and they're looking at something or someone holding on their look for that extra fucking eight frames can like so change the context of what we in the audience are perceiving as happening in that moment mm -hmm. right if you add on eight frames it means this one thing if you add on 20 frames it means something else if you cut 10 frames it means something else and like that has such a ripple effect across a character's arc in a movie, uh, these little tiny moments is like, I find endlessly fascinating. It's probably the thing I'm most fascinated by. Uh, away from everywhere. Oh, uh, yes. How good of <laughs> friends are you with Jason Priestley? I love it. Uh, well, I mean, I feel like if I called him up, I wouldn't have to remind him very much about who I am before he'd remember who I was. Okay. Right? That's good. I feel like this movie you made down here, Away From Everywhere, the one about the brothers. Uh, yeah. He's a really good guy. He's cool. a very, very nice guy. And um, definitely, um, you know, everybody liked him. He was very kind of easy to get along with. Cool. Yeah. Cool. That's obviously not my only question. That was my question. <laughs> um, I mean, that's a uh, a film adaptation of uh, Chad Pelley's novel. Chad Pelley's, yeah. Uh, talk to me about that process. How does that, how does well, that work? Well, interestingly enough, I didn't meet Chad Pelley. Really? During the entirety of the making of that film. Okay. Not for lack of trying. There were a couple of close calls in that uh, we were going to be in the same place at the same time, but... Um, Again, that was a film that I didn't have anything to do with the kind of uh, development of it. Uh, those are my good friends, uh, Brad Cover and Mark Hoff. Uh, and Mark wrote the script. And uh, they started working with uh, Barbara Torin uh, to help get the film financed. And so they hired me to kind of help them to just be like a story editor and to help Mark with the script. And um, I guess about a year after that, they asked if I'd be interested in uh, coming on to direct it. And at that point, I'd been helping Mark for a year, and Mark and Pratt and I were friends anyway. And I didn't have anything else on the go, to be completely honest. So I was like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And so we did. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, that was, that was another... We shot that movie in... 16 days. Oh my God, that's not... 16 days. That's not many days. No, for a fairly chunky script. Yeah. And, um, but I will say it was one of the first times where I didn't force myself to um, want everything to be like I had seen it in my head. 
Mm. Or like I let the reality of the time constraints in. Mm-hmm. And at that point too, I'd made uh, a couple of documentaries. So I'd become a little bit more comfortable and kind of like, let's just shoot a bunch of stuff. Mm. Right? Cool. And so, yeah, I, I was pretty happy with that little film. Nice. Um, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll kind of arrive at what uh, happened with it, but I don't want to jump ahead. Oh, no, please arrive at what happened to it. Well, I mean, it was unfortunate. Like, it's... I'm trying to... Trying to decide if whether or not I should be tactful or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I will be. Okay. I think I'll err on the side. Uh, no, I joke. I joke. <laughs> um, essentially, uh, there was a falling out amongst the producers. There okay. were uh, not amongst the Newfoundland ones, like the people who I just named. Okay. We're all good. Right. Uh, but it was with kind of uh, the company in Ontario that they were working with. Mm-hmm. had a falling out so unfortunately the film uh, really has had a hard time being um, distributed mm. uh, not that there hasn't been a handful of offers mm-hmm. um, it's just about kind of people who aren't me um, having kind of all all the say in terms of they have to agree with each other mm-hmm. and um, yeah so unfortunately, uh, it's just a hard movie to find. And uh, ironically, I don't know if this is like uh, ironic or sad or a little bit of both. I guess back in the winter, uh, Willow and I, my partner, we were uh, at Fred's and I was looking through the DVD bin or the huge DVD bin. And from out of nowhere, I come upon a DVD copy of away from everywhere but like an actual dvd like there's a poster on it Mm. you turn it over it's all this stuff on the back so i didn't even know that a dvd had been made oh wow and i'm seeing it for the first time in the used dvd bin at fred's it was 28 dollars wow and i was like how is this like Number one, I had no idea that they'd even made a DVD. Number two, why is it so expensive? It's $28. So I went and bought it. (laughs) So you have a copy. (laughs) That's great. It's probably the last film, certainly dramatic film that I will ever make that I would imagine there will be a DVD of it. (laughs) Right. So something for the kid one day. Right, right. So yeah, I went and bought a $28. And then, then it was like, man, if I was a songwriter, I would write a song about finding your movie in a used DVD bin. Yeah. I found CDs of mine in a, oh, yeah? in a used CD bin. And uh, I was both flattered and disappointed at the same time. Because it's sort of like yeah. finding your stuff on a torrent. Like there's at least one album of mine that was on a torrent site. And yep. I was kind of proud yep. of that. But also yep. like would have liked that money. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Um, it's interesting. Like unless you're a major label artist... I think most artists that I know, even the ones maybe you would think don't, uh, they know what's what's up with their careers. Like they're aware, like viscerally, like probably too much almost what's what's up with their careers, right? They don't necessarily feel like I'm a cog in my own machine. Like there are definitely bands that are like that. They're like, I go on the road for this many days a year and I have the things that I need to 
create this very strange, unique lifestyle that I need to live. And as long as all that continues, I'm cool just not knowing, right? But but most people, myself included, like I haven't I know exactly what's involved in making a record, exactly what's involved in in, in getting it distributed. You know, I know the, the team members that I hire for the things and what those things are. Yep. And I viscerally know all the successes and all the non successes of those things, right? And that part of the process. Um, so I know how that makes me feel, right? Good and bad. It must be the same but different, I guess, in the situation you just described. Like, what's it like when you're like, so, you know, same thing as making a record. You're pouring your heart and soul into it. You're showing up every day physically and emotionally and everything to make this film. And then because of, like, some producers falling out, it just completely gets kind of and, and there's no there's no fixing that like i'm aware of that it's the same as an artist having their catalog sold to another label or whatever the artist is like cool i mean this is there's no getting out of this you know we're not going to go and like buy out the rights to this film or buy out the rights to my catalog and ruin my life financially to do it so i guess i just live with that like what's that like uh it sucks <laughs> you know what i mean <laughs> i just realized <laughs> Uh, I must be a great conversationalist <laughs> interviewer here because what other fucking answer could you give me than that? Imagine if you're like, well, Ian, actually, it feels excellent. Every yeah, day. there's not a lot of upside <laughs> is the only problem with it. Um, no, and I mean, I really liked that uh, the movie in terms of I was the happiest with it um, out of the other, like out of the three kind of dramatic features that I've made. Uh, I got to work with uh, Sean Doyle for the first time. And I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, overall, I have a lot of fond memories of it. And um, I would love for people to see it. Um, But it's not my call, unfortunately. Um, And I'm certainly not. I haven't suffered as much as some. Mm-hmm. in that whole kind of uh, soap opera. Mm-hmm. and uh, But one thing that I'll give all the sides credit for is that they kept it out of the editing room. Mm, nice. Uh, and I've definitely worked on films where that's not the case. Right. Where you've literally got the producer in the room um, pointing at the screen. Um, and, you know, um, you make a film... There's lots of different ways to make a film, but certainly as the filmmaker or as a director, if you want any kind of a, like I always liking it to having a seat at the adult's table. Hmm. Um, If you want to have a seat at the adult's table or retain a seat at the adult's table, you have to be uh, a producer on the film in some way or retain some kind of equity stake in it. Mm Because otherwise, a lot of important stuff is going to get um, decided on, and you have no, you don't know, right? Right. But, and I mean, you also have to be philosophical about that. It's like away from everywhere, it wasn't at the end of the day. Like I was hired to, to do a job. Right. Certainly did my job to the best that I could. Right. And um, uh, yeah, we'll see if it ever gets up platform right right yeah is this one of the reasons why um you see in a sort of a lot of the high stakes movies when when it's an actor who's earned it or a 
or a director, I guess, who's earned it, that they are also getting a production credit to kind of ensure the full, you know, what's going to happen to that movie all the way through? It can be, sure. Yeah. I mean, but like uh, producer credits, man, or there's a million different contexts for yes. why somebody gets a producer the executive credit. Producer versus sure. The, yeah. So yeah, I mean that's a whole other p- podcast that I'd be happy to have, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> I'll have you back for the producer podcast, <laughs> yes. Ian Foster. After this, um, uh, Handline caught. Let's talk about oh, that yeah. because yeah, it's yeah. the thing nice. we've worked together on. Yeah, which I was honored to uh, to to score that uh, that short. Um, tell me about uh, how that all came about and what it is. Yeah, Handline caught is a short film that I was commissioned to make for the National Film Board. And it's about an initiative uh, that is going on on Fogo Island uh, called Fogo Island Fish. And ostensibly, this is a kind of like a gourmet label for codfish. And they pay fishers essentially to catch cod the old way by hook and line, by hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this, it's a 12 minute film. We went to Fogo, myself and Andrew McCormick, who's the shooter. And we, um, spent a week on Fogo and we went out on the boats with these fishermen, watched them catching these gigantic, glorious codfish one at a time and, uh, made a film about how they've been able to turn this into a premium product a premium seafood product mm. that chefs on the mainland will pay high money for mm. uh, because of the way that it's been fished and it's a lot more su- sustainable right mm-hmm. um, ecologically friendly mm-hmm. uh, and it's working like it is absolutely working it's like there's uh, you know fancy restaurants are serving it uh, on the mainland, they're serving it uh, at the, when I say serving it, I mean Fogo Island Cod, mm-hmm. uh, serving it uh, in Parliament, or in like the Parliament Cafeteria up in Fogo, it's been, or in Ottawa, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. it's been served at. Um, yeah, so it's a great example of a few different th- things about a community continuing to reinvent itself. Mm-hmm about a way of fishing uh, that is kind of going back to the old ways, but in a modern way, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, yeah, we went and made this vibey little 12-minute short. And um, uh, yeah, and it did really well. Like it played at TIFF, it played a Pearl Inn, played a bunch of festivals. It's been sold all over the world. Like it's done really well. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And you and I got a chance to uh, collaborate for the first time. Yeah. And it was great, man. It was it was really uh, one of those little charmed kind of projects. Like when you're making features or making feature docs, this is years of your life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And the finishes of these films, even when they work out, they're fairly anticlimactic after like a long time mm-hmm. of emotional ups and downs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that little film was like, we shot it in September. It was like completely finished by March. Right. And then 
out in the world by the next fall. It was just right. like lightning fast. In the film world, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminded us, or reminded me anyway, about the value of doing shorts. Right, right. <laughs> I, I loved it. I remember when you came to me and talked to me about it and sort of what you were going for. And we were talking a lot about just music at that point anyway. And just the sort of Seeker Rose, Daniel Lemois, Brian Eno, like our mutual love of all that sort of music. And to see some of those shots, like very early in the film, you've got that great aerial shot of the boat, like straight down and, you know, the big wides of the the boat going out early in the morning and stuff. And it was just like, this is tailor made for this sort of music, you know? Yeah. Very cool. And uh, it's for free on the National Film Board website. Yeah, yeah. If anybody we'll, wants to see it, we'll post a. I'll post links with the social media release of this yeah. that film. Um, Sex and Cars. I think we're we're you know I mean there's a you've you've done a lot of stuff and I know I'm leaving out stuff. I know I'm just picking cherry picking here. And if at any point I'm missing stuff that you want to talk about, we could do it. But I want to hear about this project because it's something else we worked a little bit on together. But it's it's your new thing that's that's coming out soon, right? Not dissimilar to making a 51-minute film way back then. Uh, Close by return. <laughs> the new version of this, Ian, yes. is... No, I can't. I, can. <laughs> That's it. Uh, I have made over the last, I guess, handful of years, uh, kind of in my spare time, um, I've made a, an anthology series called Sex and Cars. Uh, it's, I guess it's a web series, but it's more an anthology series in that these are heavily scripted with actors. They're essentially little mini films, like Mm -hmm. short films. And when I tell people web series or what I've noticed is like web series have a reputation for being very short, Mm -hmm. very current, kind of constantly refreshing, uh, in terms of its content Mm. um so this is more kind of a traditional anthology series in that uh there are six episodes Mm -hmm. uh they're all set inside a car Mm -hmm. uh they are all with the exception of one um or two hander Mm -hmm. and the stories are unrelated so each episode is its own little story um and I wrote one of them, but I got five of my writer friends to write the other five. And uh, some really good folks in there, uh, Robert Chafe, uh, Ed Rich, Wanda Nolan, Emily Hooper, Dave Sullivan. Um, so a pretty eclectic mix. Mm-hmm. Who I just kind of straight up asked, well, you know, here's the concept. Two people in a car, sex is somehow the hook or the theme or the surprising thing Mm -hmm. and uh they were all game i got a small arts council who grant Mm -hmm. of 7500 bucks Mm -hmm. and uh that was after i had shot the first one on my own Mm -hmm. and then i once that that worked it was like okay maybe i could do five more of these right because we shot it in like an afternoon um And I had a sound recordist and a makeup artist. And then I was the shooter and the director and the two casts. It was very small. Right. And, uh, you know, by the time, like, I paid the handful of people and paid the actors and stuff, it was about 
1200 bucks, I think. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if I could get an arts council grant, like I could use the first episode as a model for how I would do another five. Mm-hmm. And uh, arts council went for it and gave me uh, 7,500. So, um, and yeah, like, I guess I started this, I shot the first one in 2015, mm. I think. Mm. And then uh, shortly after that, uh, Willow and I had our son. Mm-hmm. And that swallowed up a whole lot of time and just having to make a living working on like quote unquote real films. Right. So it's been something that I've kind of left for long periods of time, but returned to and left and returned to. And anyways, now we're in the very exciting time, uh, Ian, where it's almost all done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you feel like it's taken on a different weight to you now because it's been like a three-year journey for this series? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. What does uh, that mean? Crushing well, doubt and what else? Oh, yeah, all of the <laughs> t- typical stuff. You yes, get exactly, like yeah. euphoria, crushing doubt. <laughs> Alternating hourly. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> and like there have been points in time when it felt like this giant mountain that I would never climb. Right, right. And then there have been points once I was able to get a bit of momentum, right? Because it's like the shooting of them, strangely enough, was the easy part. Mm. Because you have such little resources, uh, therefore such little time. It's mm. like, okay, we have Wednesday afternoon. We're going to shoot from, you know, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. And this is what we have, and that's when we're going to do it. But the editing and the post... Mm-hmm is limitless because I'm d- d- doing all that on my own. Right. So there's no kind of little tiny box that I have to, to fit the work into. Right. If I were more d- disciplined and was more of a task master with myself, mm-hmm. I definitely could have had this done a lot sooner. Don't but, you wish you were back in the VHS to VHS state? It would have, it would have forced you to just make the cut. You know, I should have done it VHS to VHS. I regret, I'm going to have to start over now. No, I'm kidding. You could just apply a filter and make it look like VHS now. Yeah. And we'll, yeah. But I mean, the core was, I felt at the time I needed to, or like the core of why this uh, project exists is I felt I needed to get my mojo back. Mm. Like I was definitely going through a period. And I think if you're a creative person who's been doing something for a long time, I think it's normal and natural to kind of hit a period where you just kind of completely forget that you love this stuff Mm. and that you used to have a lot of fun at this stuff. And like Mm. this would get your heart pumping and it would be all that you thought about and like it would drive your days. When, Because once you start to make a living at it, suddenly it's just way more at stake. Right. And you might even find yourself doing work that was never necessarily in the plan in terms of when you were in your room in Mount Pearl when you were 15, being like, yeah, I'm going to be a director. Right. And this is why it sucks to be good at multiple things, which is not normally something anyone would say is a bad thing. That's supposed to be good. And in most ways it is. And I guess in ultimate life ways, like you're not destitute living in like some one room shack somewhere right now. Like, it is good, of course, right? But on that, like, top of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, like, you know, obviously from a privileged place, you've got all the other food, shelter, and loving family and all that stuff, but at the very top now, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about that 
that creative thing that like because you're good at a bunch of things you can go off and you can do them and you you did them for all the right reasons and you've been doing them for all the right reasons and i i mean i'm saying all this of course because i feel my life being similar i do so many different things and i do enjoy them all but there is that element of sort of they all do expend a degree of stamina and creative energy to do them whether you're director for hire or it's your own passion exactly. project and it, exactly. it, it you're so right it's yeah. so easy to just use up all that energy on uh not extraneous projects is the wrong word but you know what i'm talking about that yep. all that stuff we're talking about and then suddenly find yourself being like this is my job this is my yeah you know i could be working in an office or doing this yeah and it is more fun to be doing this than yep. working at an office yeah but you actually have to remind yourself of that yeah yeah and that was my i guess this was that's why sex and cars, right? Is I needed to just have some fun and reacquaint myself with like that kind of juice, that mm. feeling, mm. right? Mm. And uh, it worked. I mean, it ended up t taking a long time, but um, the final product is um, I'm thrilled with it from a, you know, I definitely feel like. Um, nothing was um uh, there's no c compromises made yeah right and i'm not i'm not one to think either that like compromises are always bad like we were just kind of talking about you have to let the limitations inform your process mm -hmm. i thought like that that process worked out really well with this mm -hmm. and it's writing and dialogue really except for one episode which is a silent but um that also gets back to what we were talking about right at the very beginning like what i like mm -hmm. uh is stories about people mm. and if you ask a writer to write a story about two people in a car and sex is in the air that's fundamentally a story about a relationship and story about human beings mm. and story about power dynamic and vulnerability and sensitivity even if all of that is lacking in the in the story and that's what the, the story is about so it was just a really cool way to set up some interesting um relationships right and then uh let the writers write it and um you know, shoot them very kind of sparse, but each one in their own way, and then edit them. Right. And, uh, you know, um, get unsuspecting friends to help me with the <laughs> music. I mean, that's really the recipe here. <laughs> I don't know who those people could be. And another giant part of the, or a core part of the concept was I wanted to uh, release them all online simultaneously, mm -hmm. Netflix style, mm -hmm. which is still what will happen. Cool. Yeah. Cool. I won't, I won't make you commit to a date here. Especially since this also lives on the internet, so time is irrelevant. To yeah, point. time's a flat a circle while, here. Yeah. But look for a link in the show notes. Can there I say go. that? There you go. Exactly. You can say That's that. That's always relevant. Yes. There are always links in the show notes. Always. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Um, cool, man. I yeah. mean, I think we've caught up. Feels like, you know, we sir, we did close a little by return. This is act three. We did it. It's a three act. I mean, act two and the, the, there's stuff yeah. in the middle there that definitely, you know. Yeah was a little the Hobbit-esque. We and, went off uh, on some tangents that maybe we could have cut, but I think yeah. that they were good. Well, and that you might still <laughs> cut. Yeah. Um, 
not that I have any editorial uh, <laughs> part in this, but um, I wanted to say too that I've been enjoying your podcast so far. Uh, I haven't heard them all, but I've heard three of them or three or four of them. Cool. And uh, yeah, I commend you, sir. Thanks, man. And uh, I'm like a giant, as I have told you, I'm a podcast nerd. I've listened to hundreds of hours of podcasts. They are the probably even more so than film now. They've become my primary mode of kind of entertainment consumption to the point where like I think I told you one night if I'm home and I and like Willow is out or whatever and I can watch like I have like three hours where I can do whatever I want. I will often create housework for me to do so I can listen to a podcast. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I just love, and I wish that there was more of a podcast community here in St. John's because, man, we love Taco Radio. Uh, we love Open Line and all that stuff, and um, we also love to talk, so... I would love it. Like if I were rich, like super rich, I would personally finance a Newfoundland podcast network. Right. And give some of our coolest, most interesting people a platform, even in the typical ways, like cooking podcasts or a podcast about hockey or a podcast about politics and news. It's like we would have such a great flavor of podcast. Not to criticize any podcast efforts happening out there now, but... well. Here's hoping you become super rich. <laughs> Ian who? Ian Ian Foster. No. Hang up. Hang Damn up. it. He's got me on tape committing to this. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Uh, thanks a lot, Justin. Thank you, sir. And that's it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Justin as much as I enjoyed having it. Tune in next week when my guest will be Shirley Montagu. Don't forget to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. See you next time.